And God, we ask for us as your people that you would give us the grace to be merciful to those who view this pandemic, this moment differently than we do. And Lord, some in our church family are going through very acute, very focused trials. We continue to pray for Sally Ebbett. We ask for Pat Fletcher, God, that you would sustain her, also encourage her, give her strength. We ask for Nelson Moody, God, would you sustain him to the end of his days. We pray for Bill and Teresa and their family, Lord, that you would encourage them, that their hope would be in Christ and the life that he offers. A number of others are dealing with what it means to live in broken bodies for Fred Gregory, Jim McGinnis, Bob Veroni, and Tom Williamson as they battle cancer. We pray for these brothers, that you would sustain them. I pray that their eyes would be fixed on you, that they would run this race with patience, looking to Christ. We pray for the spread of the gospel in our community through Uptown Church and Pastor Chris Blaylock. We ask for him as well as he ministers now as the interim leader of BCM, Baptist Collegiate Ministry, God, that you would help him sow seeds of the gospel, uh, particularly uh, at the Citadel and at the College of Charleston. We ask for Vice President Pence, that you would protect him, that you would give him wisdom. Thank you, Father, for Joe and Kathy Richardson and their family. I ask that you would bless them in their marriage as parents and grandparents. Give them a sense of satisfaction in their work and their relationship with Christ. And I ask that you would bless and protect their family. This morning, we gather as people, not as what we're used to or in the way that we're used to. But God, there are people around the world unengaged and unreached. And this morning, we pray for the China people group in Pakistan. Lord, I pray that you would call out laborers for this harvest, that they would come to know you. Now, as we come to your word, would you give us victory in our fight against sin in a very personal way in our lives? Lord, help us to grow in faithfulness as we worship together. Lord, would you prepare us through our worship and through our discipleship for the spiritual battles against principalities and powers in this world? May we be Christians who live lives of sincere worship before the world around us. And Lord, would you help everything in our lives and our worship center on the one who is worthy of worship, the lamb who was slain, the lion who conquers, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 5. And at this time, I'm not going to forget as badly as I did last week, if you are a child who would like to head out, I think we have maybe a couple here who would head to the class. That'd be great. Um, and so this goes through K-5. And if that would serve your family well, this would be the time for you to head out the door. You can head out this door, and then you can pick them up out that door after the service. They won't be far. They're just through the door there. Miss Lauren looks so friendly, even with her mask on. It's good to have the sound of kids back, isn't it? All right, well now I invite you to open your Bible with me to Revelation chapter 5, if you aren't already there. Revelation chapter 5, we'll be finishing up our series on Christ-centered worship by looking at Christ-centered worship in Revelation 5. There's really no better place we can go in the Word of God to see what this picture looks like in full color. As we walk through this passage together, we'll see this central idea that Christ-centered worship springs 
from the vision of Jesus Christ revealed in God's word. Christ-centered worship springs from the vision of Jesus Christ revealed in God's word. So if you have your Bible, we'll begin reading now in Revelation 5, verse 1. John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Then the elders fell down and worshiped. We began this series asking ourselves to picture what it would look like for a room full of people to worship God wholeheartedly, to sing praise to God with everything that's in them, to understand that the glory of the Lamb is why we're here, and to understand that it doesn't end here, that we take the word that we consume in the gathering of God's people, and we take it with us, and we share it with one another. We share it with the world around us as we go. And we said, imagine, imagine a world where that was true. And then we arrive at the end of history in Revelation 5, and we see that it's so much better than that. That's a small picture of what's to come. We arrive in Revelation 5 and we are in the middle of a worship service where the heavenly creatures are crying out, glory to the Lamb. But before we arrive at this worship service, we find ourselves in a crisis at the beginning of Revelation chapter 5. We're introduced to these ideas in Revelation 4, the worth of the Lamb, but we come to Revelation 5 and we find the God of the ages holding a scroll. And this scroll reveals his plan for the ages. And John is caught up in this vision, and when he sees this scroll, he longs to see what's in it. But when it comes time to open the scroll, behold, no one in heaven is worthy to open the scroll. 
what's in the scroll is so beautiful that John weeps at the thought of not seeing what's in the scroll. And this scroll is sealed. Not with one seal, but with seven seals. And it's as John weeps that he hears a note of hope. Behold the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. There is one worthy to open the scroll. Now we don't use seals today in the same way that are pictured here, but we do seal envelopes. When you lick that envelope and close it, only the person to whom it's addressed has the right to open it. So if I come and I find you with a letter open that has my name on it, I can say rightfully, why did you open my mail? Maybe you have this at home. What would you do open my mail? Only the person with the right to break the seal can break the seal. And in verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so in the midst of John's despair, he's brokenhearted at the thought of not being able to see what's here. He hears this note in verse 5. One of the elders said, weep no more. And it's here we get this amazing picture of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the only one worthy to open this scroll. He is worthy of worship because he conquers in verse 5. When the elder tells John to stop crying... He tells him why. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. At the end of the book of Genesis, we find ourselves at the death of a patriarch. This man's name is Jacob. Now, Jacob has a lot of issues going on in his life, but he had a lot of sons. Twelve. And his twelve sons become the twelve tribes of Israel. And he blesses them before he dies. And the blessing that he gives to Judah is memorable. Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Judah crouched as a lion who dares to rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The lion of Judah is the great king, the conquering hero, who will defeat all of his enemies and rule forever. For centuries, God's people looked for this king, the one who would rule like a lion, place his foot on the neck of his enemies. And in Revelation, John connects these dots for us. The lion of the tribe of Judah is the root of David. You see, God's people hoped that David would be the conquering king. But it wasn't David, but rather a greater son of David, who was this king, the ultimate warrior king. You see, kings bow to no one. But Jesus is the king of kings. The one to whom every knee will bow. Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. So, we immediately have this great image of Jesus' power. He is the one who conquers. Now, our image of power is of size, of strength, of greatness. In fact, because humans can't fully embody this, we even create images of people who are greater than human, superhuman, and we call them superheroes. And we have families, classes of superheroes. We have DC Comics superheroes and Marvel superheroes. 
when John hears about a lion, I'm sure he imagines something superhuman, something powerful. So he's no doubt surprised by what he sees because he turns and he expects to see something powerful. But Jesus, the lion, conquers through dying. He's worthy of worship because he died. So John is in this vision of the throne room and he hears that there's a lion. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's weeping and he lifts his eyes and what does he see? A lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, the language to us is familiar enough that it can pass by us if we're, if we're not careful. The lamb has been violently slaughtered. The lamb who was slaughtered. In other words, this lamb, they've taken a knife and slit its throat. It's not a pretty white lamb. It's a bloody lamb. You've seen the lifeblood literally flow out its neck. It's a bloody mess. And a lamb like this certainly can't stand. So when there is a slaughtered lamb standing there, it's this juxtaposition of death, slaughter, and of power because it's standing. Jesus is a lamb slain unlike any other. He's able to stand after death. You see, the person standing there is none other than the Lamb of God who rose again and conquered sin and death and hell. In John chapter 1, when Jesus is entering his earthly ministry, John the Baptist is out preaching in the wilderness. And he sees a man coming to him and he knows it's Jesus. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the central goal of Jesus' mission was to offer himself as a ransom for sinners. To experience death is to experience grief. Yet Jesus' death is a reason for worship. I mean, his death, more than any other image, here is the reason we're to worship him. Verse 6, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Verse 9, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You see, it's the death of the lamb that shows how much the lamb is worthy of worship. To worship is to declare the worth of someone or something. To revere that person as worthy. If you were to take a moment this morning and think of someone you love, I mean really love, and you began to list for yourself reasons you love that person, you might think of, they're just so fun to talk to. When you converse with this person, they bring you alive and you can talk for hours and not get bored. Or actually, it might be the opposite. There's someone that you can sit and not talk and it doesn't matter. You can sit in the same room and just feel very comfortable, or it might be the color of their eyes. It might be the sound of their voice or the scent when they walk by you. There might be something that brings to mind, this is why I love this person. But if there's one characteristic I don't think you'd think of, it's that they died. You see, even if we don't blame someone for dying, death is a separation. It's a sign of brokenness. It's a sign that something has gone wrong. It's a mark of loss, not a mark of love. Yet the central reason that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is worthy of worship is because he died. So why is his death a reason for love and worship? Jesus' death is different from every other death because Jesus' death 
saves. Verses 9 and 12. Have you ever been to a funeral? I imagine that many of us have. Four years in my previous church, one funeral. My first year here, 23 funerals. We have funerals. We know funerals. It doesn't matter the funeral that you attend. You go, and even if we try to make the best of a bad situation, have you ever been at a funeral where they just told jokes to, to try to make everyone feel better? They didn't really know how to process the grief, and so they tried to cope with it by making everyone laugh. And truth is, in sober, somber moments, sometimes uh, relieving tension through laughter is, is a helpful way of processing grief. But sometimes if you're at a funeral and it's the death of a young adult or horrifyingly a young child, it's a reminder how terrible that is. But even if you reach the end of life, I mean, I've never been at any bedside or any funeral where I thought, oh, it was time. I mean, this person could almost be the ancient of days, very, very old. But when they pass, it's a sign that something's not right. You see, death is the great enemy. Every time death shows up, that day rots. We've lost loved ones who never really got to live the life they should have lived. We've lost others who have lived full lives. But when they're gone, they're gone. Every time death shows its face, it's a curse. A reminder that things aren't right, that life isn't supposed to be this way. You see, we grieve death. Sometimes we are angered by death. We fear death. We flee death. We don't celebrate death. But we celebrate the death of the Lamb. Why? It's not just death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 gives us this amazing promise. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. It's a beautiful line in one of the songs we sing, The Power of the Cross. Death is crushed to death. We long for that day. You see, Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, the Lord of life stepped from that tomb and walked and lived and breathed again. The reason we praise him for dying is because his death accomplished salvation. Look again at verse 9. By your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, Jesus' death saves people from every corner of the globe. His blood is the price for our redemption. This morning God is calling a people for his name. A people from every nation, from every tribe, from every language. But it's one thing to know that there is a God working out there, and it's another thing to hear God call you. Perhaps this morning God is calling your name. Perhaps God is calling you to turn from your sin. The voice of our Creator is calling you. It's one thing to know that God loves sinners. It's another thing to know that God loves me. That there is a Father in heaven who eternally cares for His people. If you've been running from God's call to you, would you turn from your sin and cry out to Jesus to save you? But Jesus doesn't just save us from death. He doesn't just save us from sin. He saves us to an eternal inheritance. He shares it. 
If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn back with me to the book of Genesis. It's all the way near the beginning of your Bible. So it goes Genesis and then this, or sorry, the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. So it goes Genesis and then Exodus. We'll go to Exodus chapter 19. I want us to see something here. So in Exodus chapter 19, God is making a covenant with his people Israel at Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 20, Moses famously receives the Ten Commandments. But at the beginning of chapter 19, Exodus 19, the Lord makes an amazing promise. So if you're there now, look at Exodus 19, verse 5. The Lord says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, so how... Do God's people become a nation of royal priests? They perfectly obey God's voice. Okay, so that's the condition. He says, you're going to be this kind of nation, but you must obey me. Right, now take your Bible and turn near the end of your Bible. to 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you go back to the book of Revelation, you turn a handful of books back, you'll come to 1 Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter 2, Peter is writing to a group of people who have been scattered by persecution. He says, you can build your life safely on Jesus, the cornerstone. And now look at 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That language should sound very familiar to you because it's from Exodus that we just read. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in Exodus, how is it that the Israelites thought they'd become God's people? By their obedience, by heeding, by obeying God's voice. Yet if you track the history of Israel, you know they failed miserably. They They didn't do it. They were awful at obedience, and they never fully fulfilled God's intentions for them. So, when we arrive in 1 Peter chapter 2, and 1 Peter says, this has been fulfilled, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, how is it possible that it's fulfilled? How can this be possible? It wasn't by their obedience, and it's not by our obedience. It's by the obedience of another. Peter says, you have received mercy. You didn't receive justice, you received mercy. In other words, Jesus has the right to rule everything as a perfect prophet, priest, and king. He has earned this right as the perfectly obedient son of God. But he takes what is his and he shares it with us. Revelation 5 where he started, colors in the spaces a little bit more. Revelation 5, verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open it, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests who are God, and they shall reign on the earth. We now, by faith, are royal priests by the blood of Christ, and we will reign with Jesus. Abraham Kuyper, the former prime minister of the Netherlands, famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, 
who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That's true. Jesus reigns over everything. But what we see here in God's word is we should extend this out a little bit. You see, 1 Peter 2 and Revelation 5 teach us that Christ takes every inch of the universe over which he rules, and now he says, yours. He takes what belongs to him and he shares it with us. He takes what we could never earn, never deserve, and he shares it. He's the king. He owes allegiance to no one. He has the right to do whatever he wants, but he chooses to share his kingdom with us. Well, how does this work? Well, one day it's going to look like this, where the king of kings and lord of lords is visible and everyone sees him, but today it looks more like Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, Paul teaches us about our union with Christ. When Christ died, we died. When Christ rose, we rose with him. So therefore, we're dead to sin and alive to God. And then Paul uses kingdom language to describe our fight against sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. You have a new king. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Because Jesus, the risen king, is our king. We have his power to dominate sin in our lives rather than be dominated by sin. This means when you feel the lure of your device calling you to solicit and look at images you ought not to look at, you need to hear the voice of your king. He's given you the power to dominate sin rather than be dominated by sin. It means that when the fear that holds you captive, the darkness creeps into your mind, the anxiety that's like that dark horizon coming and coming and coming, and you feel that there's nothing you can do to stop it. Jesus, the risen king, gives you the power to fight this in your life today. Sin has no dominion over you to make you obey its passions. It means that when they're pushing your buttons and you feel the old familiar feeling welling up and the anger just wants to burst from you. Jesus, the risen king, has given you the power to fight the presence of sin in your life today. We will fully inherit this promise one day, but the power to fight sin in our lives is ours today. It's part of the reign that Jesus shares with us. So as we look back where we've been for the last several weeks, our worship must be driven by the word of God, Colossians 3. It must be focused on God, Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well, John chapter 4. It must be wholehearted, whole life worship, Deuteronomy chapter 6, take it with you everywhere you go. It's spirit-filled congregational worship, Ephesians 5, and here we see it is Christ-centered worship. So what in the world does this mean for our worship? I'd like to take the last bit of time we have here and think through six implications for our worship. First, we've been driven too much by what we want and too little by what God says. You see, our attitude in worship reveals what's in our hearts. 
worship is, by definition, for God. Yet some of us reveal, even in our worship, that we worship ourselves, because for us, worship is about what we want. Now, this isn't just imagination, because some are bold enough to call and tell us what they want. Some do it over and over again. But how would it change our perspective if, if rather than asking, what do I want? We asked, God, would you help me worship in a way that makes you glad? Contrary to popular opinion, we sing songs that are not my favorite songs to sing. It's true. But I'm glad to sing them out of love for my brothers and sisters in praise to God. We call this kind of thinking in our culture, we call it consumerism, giving people what they want. The Bible calls it idolatry. The breaking of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. It's possible in worship to worship ourselves. All right, now imagine with me this morning that we're not here for a worship this morning. We're here for a squirt gun fight. And so this morning, we dole out squirt guns. Some of you get, you know, the little water pistols, the old school, you know, you got to squirt it 50 times to get an ounce of water. Some of you get super soakers, like double barrel, you put it over your shoulder and like, and you can just hose everyone down. And so we arm one another, and here we are, we're going at it. And then we walk out the, out the door, and we imagine that we're entering a squirt gun fight only to find that everyone outside has AK-47s. And we're standing there with our super soakers, and we're getting blown to bits. Now, you don't have to follow the metaphor very far to see this is what we as a church have done for decades. We have built lightweight Christians for heavyweight boxing matches. We are too biblically illiterate. Our solutions are to attract, to entertain, hoping that we can feed people pastries and turn them into the Incredible Hulk rather than cream puffs. I mean, we must mine the depths of the riches of God's word for our worship. Rich worship comes from good theology, and good theology comes from God's word. Christianity light leads to dead bodies in the street. Think about the way many churchgoers picture Christianity, and then listen to these words from Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. We can't keep filling squirt guns and wondering why our young people and our families keep being blown away by cosmic powers by spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It is not a playground, it's a battleground. It's a heavyweight fight. 
Thirdly, and somewhat ironically, we can't worship together if we're not together. Now, this may seem hard to process, but I promise you it's true. I mean, there are a lot of things that God's word isn't clear about. Should you use drums in worship or not? Not easy to find. Uh, should you require masks? Encourage masks? Even wear masks? It's not there. But God's word is very clear about this. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the context in Hebrews is one of people who are under great duress. And he encourages them to hold the gospel in a day when many people are falling away. And the key to this encouragement is meeting together with brothers and sisters for encouragement. Now, there are many, many ways we could parse this out, but there are at least four groups of people in our congregation. One group, right now, given all that's going on, they're, they're people that are highly at risk and shouldn't gather for worship. There are people who, uh, their, their conditions or their age, or like, they, they shouldn't be here. And out of love for our neighbor, we want to encourage them to take whatever avenues from a distance they're able to. When we would welcome them if they felt safe coming, but, but we don't want to bind that person's conscience. A second group is people that are caring for people in that situation. And so there are those who shouldn't come, and there are those who are caring for those who shouldn't come. And because of that, we, we want out of love for them to feel that way. A, a third group are people that should come and are coming. Welcome. Good to see you. So, so that third group are people that are able and are gathering for worship. But a fourth group, and this is, this is the group I want to think about, and I don't know if any of them will hear this or engage with this, and I know some of you will engage with them. That's a group of people that should come, that don't have a good reason not to come, but either don't come or won't come. And if you think, you know, I'm doing church online, you can watch a service online, you can't do church online because to church is to gather, to assemble. You can't do it by yourself or you're at your home. Maybe you don't come because you don't like masks. Well, I'm just going to tell you a secret. I don't like them either. Most people don't. And we're all just trying to messily navigate our way through something that's not really clear. We're trying to love our neighbor, not submit to fear, but also, you know, just be wise. That's all. So if you're making the choice, watching online, not gathering, but you know you should, could I encourage you? Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. But encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Gather with the church. Fourthly, we must engage in wholehearted, word-driven, Christ-centered congregational worship. God's word is clear. And because it's clear, we must align ourselves with God and his purposes. So we devote more time, not to the production of worship, but to the content, the theology of our worship. We believe that gathered worship should be corporate, not individual. So every aspect of worship is an act we all join in rather than just observing. 
So we read the word, we pray the word, we sing the word, we see the, the word in baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we preach the word. God tells us how to worship him. So we want to be intentional in the way we worship him. But worship doesn't stop here. We must live lives of holistic worship before each other and the world around us. Luke chapter 5, Jesus sees some fishermen. He calls them to be his disciples, and they left everything and followed him. See, biblically speaking, there are no cultural Christians. There are no half-hearted Christians. There are only sold-out disciples. True Christianity sees that Jesus is infinitely worth, worth infinitely more than the world around us, so we set aside everything in this world for following Christ. The world behind me, the cross before me. People fear that if we follow Jesus, we'll have to give up our hobbies, our girlfriends, vices, or whatever. But if we think about following Jesus that way, it just demonstrates we don't know who Jesus is. You see, knowing Christ doesn't steal our joy. It compels our joy. To be fully satisfied in Christ is better than any other satisfaction. And to wholeheartedly worship and follow Jesus is how we feel joy. Because we worship the God who is worthy of worship. Our God is worthy of all our praise. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the timeless one, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the Lamb who was slain, the Lion who conquers. He is the sovereign creator and the returning redeemer. He is the Father of all God's children, the Son who redeems God's children and the Spirit who fills God's children. If we get to know this God, we won't have to call people to worship Him because we are compelled to worship Him. And in worshiping him, we will find such gratifying, joy-filled, emotional fulfillment. Every other pleasure will pale in comparison. We don't embrace a dry, distant God. God-centered biblical theology compels our emotions. God is a God who wants us to worship him with all of our being. So we sing like these sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The lamb, he is worthy. So brothers and sisters, let's worship him. I'll give you a moment now to respond to God's word personally in your seat in repentance and faith, and then we are going to sing together as we close, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Revelation song. Let's talk to God now, and then we'll close singing together.
God, we declare with the angels, myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, that the Lamb is worthy. God, would you help us live lives of worship, commit to and gather for worship. God, would you shape us into the image of Christ? And amazingly, he's not someone who just stays distant. He takes what is rightfully his and he shares it with us. God, would you help us to share this good news with those around us? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please to your feet? We'll respond to God's word and sing together, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is he.
He is worthy. Next Sunday, we're going to switch tracks a little bit. We were going to start the book of Galatians, but we're actually going to postpone that till the first of the year. We're going to take several weeks looking at hope for the discouraged uh, in God's word. We're going to look at ways that God and his word cares for his people in the midst of trying times. Uh, so next Sunday, we'll be looking at Jacob and his dysfunctional family and how God made redemption out of that mess. And uh, so hopefully this can be an encouragement uh, to you as we dive into the word of God together. Thanks for joining us together. It's been an encouragement to worship God, to hear your voices raised in song. As you go, Paul's benediction from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Have a wonderful day. Oh.